Well, I want to invite you to take out your Bibles and turn them to John 8, if you would. Uh, We say this often, but if you didn't bring a Bible, we have red ones in the seat rack near you, and that's because we want everyone to have a Bible. In this country, it's one of the privileges that we possess. If you don't have a Bible, please take it with you. Take it home. It's yours. We'll replace it. But we really want every person to be able to be a first-hander with God's Word. So, John chapter 8, we're in a series called Encountering Christ. I don't know if you've been paying attention to this banner up here on the left, but each week, again, artists are adding to it, and it's, uh, again, just reminding us that this whole series, we're studying John's gospel with this idea in mind, that Jesus had lots of encounters with different people, and that we're going to study these encounters in the hope that we can also encounter Jesus and get to know him better. Because we believe that he wants every person to get a chance to know him and grow in him. And so that's what we're seeking to do uh, this week. And so in John 8, 1 through 12, before we look at it, you know, one of my, uh, sometimes what I do is just try and give some ideas that will help us be prepared when we look at this passage. So if you're following along in the notes, here's one of the things that I just want you to think about with me this morning as we study this. John 1, 14 says that the word became flesh and dwelled among us. He pitched his tent among us, the Bible says. And that we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, here's the idea, full of grace and truth. If you're following along in the notes, Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. He didn't get his start at Bethlehem. He existed long before that, but he came from the Father full of grace and truth. The Bible says in John 1, That the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so we live in this time where grace and truth, that's an amazing thing said about Jesus. And some of you remember that first week that I actually referenced the story that we're going to study in this account this morning, that day. Because it shows, again, Jesus' ability to walk that tightrope of being full of grace and truth. An important thing we need today. Second thing I want you to see is that we're still studying, in a way, a continuation of this idea of the Feast of Tabernacles. I went into way more detail last week, so I won't do that today, except to say that this is one of three major feasts that every Jewish person was part of each year. This one, Feast of Tabernacles, could also be called the Feast of Shelters. People came from all over to Jerusalem to remember for those seven days how God had provided for them in the wilderness those 40 years between leaving Egypt and coming into the promised land. And so they would set up temporary little shelters there in the city. And while they were doing that, this was one of the festivals of huge joy. Now last week, we saw that one of the ceremonies they had every day at the Feast of Tabernacles was the water drawing or the water pouring ceremony. Well, this week, what I hope you'll see is that we are going to see that the Feast of Tabernacles also, if you're following along, has a light ceremony has a light ceremony. There was, um, again, a reminder in this particular ceremony, I'll talk about it more in a little while, that when they were going through the wilderness, not only did God provide streams of living water out of the rock that Moses struck so that a million or two million people would have water to drink, streams of living water, but they also remember during that journey that God had accompanied them, led them all the way, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And I hope you won't picture something small. This would have had to have been visible and would be shine light over a lot of people and a lot of livestock. So it went out in front of them. And this lighting ceremony was to remember how 
God had been so faithful to them. He was their light in the middle of the desert. So as we study this, there's really, I want to just, again, ask you a question to think about with me as we look at this account that we're going to study. First, I hope you'll see that that not only is Jesus full of grace and truth, but I want to ask you this question. If you're following along, what happens if I overemphasize his grace or his truth? What happens if I overemphasize his grace or his truth? If I emphasize one more than the other? And if you were here that day, several weeks ago, when we first started this series, then you may remember that I ended that day with this question. Which one do you tend to overemphasize? Which one? Grace or truth? Because we all tend to overemphasize one more than the other. And when we do that, that creates a completely different effect, a completely different result. Um, because we just talked about Pastor Gary and Janie, let me just mention something I mentioned that day. That when I was younger as a pastor, my dad said, Jeff, every church has to struggle with how they balance grace and truth. Every church has to grapple with this. And he says some churches, they emphasize grace real high, but they minimize Truth is kind of low. And when you think about that, when you come into that kind of atmosphere, people, there's a lot of compassion flowing, and there's this like sense that, hey, you're welcome, do whatever you want, that kind of thing, because there's really high grace but low truth. He says the other churches sometimes will make the mistake of having kind of low truth, I mean low grace, but high truth. And when they do that, there's kind of a spirit, I mean, it's hard to describe it, it's kind of a spirit of condemnation. It's kind of a spirit where you better walk on eggshells because we're watching to see if you make yet another mistake or here's another thing you do wrong. And the preaching sometimes from that kind of spirit can be like crushing. The Bible, instead of being practical and helpful in our lives, sometimes feels like a hammer. So when you get that kind of situation going, which one is it? And he said, Again, he said, when we think of who Jesus is, full of grace and truth, the goal for every church should be to have high grace and high truth. Because you see, when a church does this, there's still compassion, but there's challenge. There's still compassion, but it's not condemnation. If you walk into a church like that, you can experience conviction, which is clean, not condemnation, which absolutely makes you want to give up hope. And so I remember thinking a lot about that, and I thought, this is not an easy thing to balance, is it? It's why sometimes we tend to err on one side or the other. But in this passage we're going to look at today, Jesus balances them perfectly. And it it is a sight to behold. And he has a woman brought before him, caught in the act of adultery, And when you look at this text this morning, you're going to see that in almost all your Bibles, there's footnotes or some kind of marking that says the earliest manuscripts didn't necessarily put this account here in John's gospel. So whether or not it belongs here or some other place, whether it be Luke's gospel or John's gospel, almost every Bible scholar you'll read will tell you this is an authentic encounter that Jesus had. And this is something that we can study and learn from because it is the word of God too. So let's look at that today. And what I want you to see 
is that instead of jumping from John 7.52 to John 8.12, like that would be if we took this story out, I think you'll see that actually what comes right after this account actually flows and fits into what Jesus wants to teach us like he taught this woman. So I want to pray, and then we're going to look at this account about this woman's encounter with Jesus and what we can take away ourselves. Now, Lord, I pray that we will just discover that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, that it has the power to pierce even to the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, and not just expose us so that we would be condemned, but expose us so that we can grow and know a better way. So help us meet and encounter you, Jesus, now. That's our prayer. In your name we pray. Amen. Now let's look at this account. I'm going to basically walk through it. And um, what I want to do is to start with verse 1 with some comments, and then we'll follow along in the notes as well. Here we go. It says, then each one went to his own home. Verse 53 is the last verse in chapter 7. It means that the Feast of the Tabernacles was wrapping up, and so people were starting to leave Jerusalem and go back home. But it says, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts. Verse 20 tells us that he actually appeared in one of the temple courts where the treasury was. The treasury was in the court of women, which was a very large court, open area. And again, they knew that Jesus would probably be there. He often taught in that area. This is where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Now, in our school system, the teacher sits, and the, I mean, the, the teacher stands, and the students sit most of the time. But in Jewish practice, the rabbi sat, and students stood. Sometimes we invite you to read the Word of God by standing up so we can all do that. Why? To show respect for the Word of God and put ourselves in a position of learning and being teachable. So Jesus sat down, it says, and and began to teach them. Verse 3, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, this was a group of people that were the most important religious leaders of the nation, they brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, the word there is rabbi, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. If you're following along in the notes, the first thing I hope you see in this woman's encounter with Jesus is that she's caught in the act of serious sin. She's caught in the act of serious sin. This had to be humiliating. This had to be embarrassing. This had to be her worst nightmare. Imagine... Of all the things you could get caught doing, this would be really, it just has so much sensitivity, so much delicacy to it. But here she is being paraded in front of this big crowd of people and they're talking real loud and they're pointing at her and they're just humiliating her as best they can talking about this situation. One of the things that happens when we think about grace and truth is that when you and I overemphasize grace, we begin to change the name for sin. We begin to call it different things. Our nation certainly is doing that more and more. Instead of calling adultery, adultery, what do we call it now? An affair, which has, again, just a little bit more softer edge to it. It sounds adventurous, it sounds exciting, and it emphasizes the opposite of what God emphasizes. And so the idea here of it being a serious sin, does everybody remember the Ten Commandments? Number seven is simply, you shall not, what? Commit adultery. 
it's clear. God has, why has God always had that as one of the most important parts of his moral law? I'll tell you why. Not because he's trying to steal fun out of people's lives, but because he so treasures and values marriage between a man and a woman that he wants to protect that so carefully that he put these boundaries around it, these hedges, so that people would not violate that carelessly. And so you shall not commit adultery. But there's also another thing in our culture that goes beyond just adultery. One of the things that's happening in our country is that we're more and more comfortable with premarital sex and all other kinds of forms of sexual immorality. We've, we've loosened, we've relaxed, we've lightened up and loosened what God says is important. So look at these passages. I list them out to the right, but Ephesians 5, look at what the counsel of the Bible says. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person, this is talking about chronic habitual practice, for a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins, for the anger of God will fall on all who disobey him. Don't participate in the things these people do, for once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of the light. Notice what it says. Don't, don't be fooled. Don't listen to people that are excusing this or saying that doesn't, that's like old school. That's 2,000 years ago. Things have changed. Be careful. It's not changed. 1 Corinthians 6, look at this. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Again, it's talking about people that continue to practice this unaddressed without dealing with it. Don't fool yourselves, those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You are made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And again, this is the idea that practicing these kinds of things in an ongoing way without any kind of remorse or any kind of sense that God says those are serious violations of what he designed things to be. So this was really quieting, and this woman is caught in this act of serious sin. The rabbis said that idolatry, murder, and adultery we're capital punishment. And some of us go, wow, seriously, God? You think it's that serious? He goes, it's that serious. I wanted to lay down boundaries so you understand that you wouldn't do that kind of stuff lightly. Wow. So they bring this woman caught in this way. Just try and imagine what's going on. But anybody notice, last I checked, doesn't it take two people to commit adultery? So I, I don't know about you, but I'm just like curious what's going on here. Because I'm pretty sure the guy either has really good tennis shoes and he got away, or something else is not smelling right here. Okay? That leads us to the second thing if you're following along. John tells us her accusers bring her to Jesus to trap him. Her accusers bring her to Jesus to trap him. John says that. Let me continue verse 5 in the beginning of verse 6. It says this, In the law, this is what they said to him, Teacher, in the law... Moses commanded us to stone such women. That's only partly true, by the way. We're going to see in just a second. That's not all Moses said. Now, what do you say? And the emphasis is on you. Verse 6, they were using this question as a trap 
in order to have a basis for accusing him. In other words, they felt like, we have got him now. If you've been studying, you know that in the last, ever since John 5, the hostility between these religious leaders and Jesus is amping up. And they are on their way to looking for a way to get him killed, to get rid of him if they can, because he's taking away their press. He's taking away their envious of what he's doing with the people. They don't like some of the things he's doing, and, it, and they're just feeling small. So now they try and go after him, and they feel like they finally figured out how to do it. So they come to him, and they know, look, you're in trouble no matter what you say. If you say, no, I don't think we should do what Moses says in the Bible, you're saying the Bible's not important and that you're more wiser than the Bible. But if you say, no, I think we should stone her, (laughs) all the people that are following you now are going to go, man, you're harsh because that's fallen by the wayside. We don't even practice that much anymore. Plus, here's the other thing. In fact, we get this idea from John 18, 31 when they go to try and execute Jesus. Because Rome was the ruling power, they didn't have the power just to execute people on a whim or even under their law. Rome had to have the ultimate say. So if Jesus would have said, well, let's execute her then, then they would have immediately gone to the Roman authorities and said, you've got a troublemaker in this town. And they would have tried and get rid of him that way. So either way, they were trying to throw him under the bus. Now, again, you need to know that in the law, things were set up so carefully that God would not, that someone couldn't be easily accused of a crime like this and be executed lightly. So therefore, the law, even the law, the Old Testament law was written that says, if you see your brother doing something wrong or beginning to wander away from the Lord, it's your job to warn him. It's your job to go after him and say, don't do that. Don't mess up your life like that. Don't sin against God like that. Therefore, you couldn't just go accusing people because you didn't like them. You had to make sure you cared about them. Not only that, but also the law was set up that guess who the first person was that was commanded to throw the stone if their accusing held up? The accusers. Can you imagine? It's one thing to accuse someone of something and be a witness to it. It's another thing to have to pick up a stone and begin to execute their death. It would create just a sense of unbelievable, knee-knocking seriousness. Oh my gosh, we are in serious trouble now. And so this is all there. Look at uh, Leviticus 20.10. Look what it says here. It says, If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, the wife say of his neighbor, both the man and the woman. Let's read that phrase again. Both the man and the woman, the adulterer and the adulteress, must be put to death. Jesus is already smelling something rotten in Denmark. There's something wrong. Where's the man? Where's the man? But notice what happens next if you're following along in the notes. Jesus writes on the ground and finally answers. Jesus writes on the ground and finally answers. I've mentioned this before, but when people come and ask for my opinion, what I've noticed, unfortunately, in myself over the years is that I am quick to immediately bless them with my wisdom and knowledge. I mean, I just want to look at them and say, you are so wise to ask me what you, what you need to think about this, you know? And sometimes I just see that kind of readiness. You know, James 1.19 says, be slow to speak. Be careful. Don't just immediately talk. And Jesus here models that. Instead of just, what do you say? 
And again, he didn't even have to answer this question. They didn't take him seriously as a rabbi. He hadn't been raised in the right schools. So he didn't even have to answer this question. But he knows this woman is in danger. But instead of answering them, he does this interesting thing. John tells us that he stoops down and begins to write with his finger on the ground. Does anybody remember when Moses was given the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai? How did the wording show up on those two stones? Anybody remember? The Bible tells us this interesting detail. It says that those words were written by the finger of God. Hmm. And now God is stooping down in front of them, God in human flesh, and writing with his finger in the ground. Don't you wonder what he's writing? Some people feel like the reason he did that is because he was buying time. Nothing wrong with that. He wanted to just make sure his thoughts were formed before he talked. And so he just knelt down and, and was actually doodling. It wasn't anything in the, in the ground. He was just writing something. Others believe that he was so appalled and so grieved by the heart of these accusers that he couldn't even look at them and take them seriously. He needed to regain. Plus, looking at this woman and seeing how broken she is, he, he just, it was more than he could handle. And he just knelt down on the ground and, and uh, began to write with his finger. Others believe that what he wrote on the ground may have been the seventh commandment, the finger of God writing the seventh commandment. Others believe that maybe what he was writing was their own personal sins, maybe even their names, maybe even the name of the guy to expose that these people are as dishonest as the day is long when they want to get their own way. All we know is he made them very uncomfortable because as he's writing on the ground, notice that the verse says as they keep questioning him, they keep pressing him. How long do they do that? We don't know but it was getting tense. You could cut the tension with a knife. And they keep asking him, what is it? What is it? What is it? And so notice that he finally answers. And I'll read the end of verse 6, verse 8, all the way through verse 8. It says, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, if any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. They were not prepared for this answer. He basically says, I know what Moses said, and so let's have an execution. Here's how we're going to do it. The person that will go first is the person without sin. Now, some have said over the years that this means that Therefore, no one can ultimately be a judge in our justice system because no one's without sin. No one can really challenge anybody because no one's without sin. The Bible doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't mean that only perfect people can do these kinds of things. What it meant was, is anyone who is without this particular sin and also who is without any intention like this. What's amazing is what happens next if you're following along in the notes. Her, her accusers depart, leaving her alone before Jesus. Her accusers depart. They all go away, beginning with the oldest to the youngest, leaving her alone before 
Jesus. This is an interesting thing. We're told that the oldest go first and then the youngest, all the way down, one by one by one. The crowd's probably still there, but now it's just like this moment between Jesus and her. Now, why did the oldest people leave first? Why did the oldest leaders? Some believe because they lived longer, they'd sinned more. Some believe that the reason they left is because they had the sense to realize this wasn't going to work out the way they planned. All we know is that they all went away. They came to accuse and they left accused. They came to shame and they left ashamed. And we're just reminded that again, as they depart, they were not able to follow through on their trap. They came with the wrong motives. They came with truth but no grace. And Jesus exposes it. When I was a kid years ago, my teachers taught me something I've never forgotten. Maybe you were taught this too. Is be careful to point fingers at other people because whenever you do, remember there are three fingers pointing back at you. I've never forgotten that simple thing. I haven't always benefited from it. But I've never forgotten that little way of saying, just be careful. Don't be so quick. Don't be so truth-driven that you don't have any compassion and think about your own situation because it's so easy to have 20-20 vision on somebody else and forget what's going on in me. And that's what had happened in these accusers, and Jesus exposes that. You know, one of the things that's precious about Jesus, I told you earlier, is that Jesus did not go soft on sin. He did not just say, oh, you know, adultery is no longer a problem anymore with God. He's actually okay with it now. Look at John 5, 27 and 28. This is in the New Testament. This is the Sermon on the Mount. We studied this. But chapter 5, verse Matthew 25, did I say the right book of the Bible? Sorry, my fault. Matthew 5. It says this. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus goes, You need to understand the spirit of the law, not just the letter of the law. You need to understand that God doesn't want people regularly going, hey, it's time for me to change players. It's time for me to start, you know, to get out of the rock tumbler of marriage because it looks more convenient and more attractive over here. Come on. Jesus says, no, that is not God's heart. God wants us to care about his heart. Interesting thing there. Wow. And I read this saying this week. It says, if the secret thoughts of a man were written on his forehead, he would never remove his hat. Some of us are walking around with hats. This woman's hat had been taken off, and she stood before him, but so had the accuser's hats been taken off by Jesus. Well, it doesn't end there. Notice, if you're following along in the notes, that though he could condemn, though he could condemn, He warns and gives a second chance. The one person that could have condemned this woman, the one person that was sinless, righteous, pure, Jesus, he could have condemned her, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he warns and gives a second chance. This is how he is full of grace and truth. Let me read verses 10 and 11. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman? Now, when he says woman here, he's not saying it in a way that sometimes gets said in our culture. He's saying it with the utmost respect. This is the same way he spoke to his mother at the foot of the cross and before the wedding miracle at Cana. And when he says it, he says, Woman, 
And I bet the moment, can you imagine, sometimes we read these words and we don't hear the tone of voice that they were probably spoken in first. Can you imagine how this sounded from this woman? Again, totally humiliated. He goes, woman, where are they? Most gentle tenderness this woman probably had ever experienced from a man in a very chauvinistic culture. I bet she never forgot the way he spoke to her the rest of her life. Even the tone of his voice, she could hear it. Right now, I believe that Jesus is saying to every man in this room, respect women. Talk to them the way Jesus talked to them. Look at them as people and not as people to use or use as traps. Woman, where are they? I love this. It goes on and says, has no one condemned you? And then listen to the humility in her voice, the respect in her voice. No one, sir. No one, sir. Now I want you to read verse 11 with me out loud, and I pray that God burns these words into our hearts. Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Let's read it one more time. Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And what I want you to see here is that in these words, that is a powerful, powerful thing that we're going to unpack in just a moment. But what, what a moment. What a moment of going from, this is my last hour on earth, to the fact is, I've just been given a second chance. I walked into this courtyard hopeless, and I have met someone who talked to me with dignity and who could have condemned me. But he didn't. But neither did he let me off lightly. He challenged me. He warned me that what I am about to do next matters. And what I want you to see in verse 12 is this incredible link between walking in darkness and walking in the light. So let's read verse 12 together. Would you read it out loud with me in the second grade box? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now this is actually recorded a little bit later, but what we're told is that after the Feast of Tabernacles had concluded, Jesus stood up and said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. That will no longer be the pattern of their lives anymore. They will not walk in darkness. But now, now they will have the light of life. Now when Jesus said this, what they did at the Feast of the Tabernacles beginning on the first day is they set up in the court of women where Jesus was now teaching this story. They set up in the court of women, which is where the treasury was as well, four super tall menorah. Do you know what those candelabra candlesticks look like of the Jewish people with the curves and the seven candles on the top? Four huge ones like this. They were 50 cubits high according to the Mishnah and that means if I convert it correctly, possibly 74 feet high. They had ladders up to this where they would pour quarts of oil into them every day so they would burn all week long. And there was incredible joy about this. And what happened is they had the younger priests climb those ladders and fill uh, the uh, candelabra, the menorah, with, with, with uh, the oil. But these would burn all week long. Most Jewish people knew that there was not a porch in Jerusalem that was not affected by the yellow glow and radiance of these menorah. But now those had been turned off. 
the feast was done and most people were leaving and going home. They also, remember, had set up these temporary shelters. So picture at night, not flashlights, which have more of an artificial glow, but picture lamps that have that yellow glow all throughout the city. So the light that would fill these little shelters and would also be, you know, just the menorahs shining on them. What a week. And the joy was incredible. And Jesus now says, I am. The same phrase that God told Moses was his name. I am the light of the world. I'm not just the light of Jerusalem. I'm not just the light of the Jewish people. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, whoever follows me, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So what does it mean to go and sin no more? Here's what I want you to see at the last line there in the section is this woman now, the light of the world, calls her to walk in his light. How would you like to be standing before someone who said, I am the light of the world? And when he talked about the light of the world, remember, it represented the pillar of fire that shined there in the desert. There's something different about fire compared to man-made light. There's something about it. There's something about fire that purifies and cleanses, that exposes, that brightens, that blinds sometimes. But there's something about that fire. And Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. If you know anything about me, you know that I am different than anyone else that's ever walked this earth. I am the light of the world, and I can give light into your life. You do not have to keep walking in darkness. And he says to this woman, walk now in a different way. So what is go and sin no more? How oftentimes we've heard people say, neither do I condemn you, but we haven't heard go and sin no more. And if we're going to really live full of grace and truth, we've got to hold up both. Neither do I condemn you, praise God, but go and sin no more. So let's talk about that in the closing moments here. Notice, first of all, that Jesus commands here, make a clean break. Make a clean break. I don't know if you've seen this verse before, but we studied Jude. It says something interesting, Jude 1.4. Look at what Jude writes. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. These are people that go to church sneaking in in churches. They were they're ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. What they basically say is, that stuff doesn't matter anymore. I, I've got grace. I'm free now. I can live any way I want. I can be sexually immoral because it's not sexually immoral anymore. You know, God doesn't call it that anymore. And they turn it into a license. They say, grace teaches me that I can sin any way I want, any time I want, and it's not a big deal. Friends, God help us from that kind of thinking. But notice what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 29 and 30. Here's what he says right after he says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to, be, to go into hell. When I read these words in high school, they disturbed me. They disturbed me massively. Because I knew that I was kind of probably walking around if I was going to obey Jesus on this, eyeless and handless. And I started thinking to myself, in fact, how many Christians are going to have many body parts left, like if we take this seriously? So I asked a Bible teacher once, what is Jesus doing here? What's he talking about? Is he literal? And he said, something that's helped me the rest of my life. He said, Jesus is using hyperbole 
to show that the only way to deal with sin is to deal with it drastically, to give it no quarter, to be willing to make any break you need to make. In other words, cut off, stop, make an end to it. Stop playing around with it, Jesus is saying. If you're really serious about following me, and some of you know that repentance is this simple idea that I'm walking in one direction, going my own way, walking in darkness. I hear God calling to me, telling me to turn around and turn to him, to walk in his light. And instead of just stopping, a lot of people think repentance means to stop something, to manage my sin. No, he's saying, don't just stop it. Turn around and now walk in the direction that I give you in my light. And friends, this is what Jesus is saying. Make a clean break. Honestly, there may be someone here today that you need to hear this question. When is it going to stop? When is a habit or a practice or something that God has shown you by his light, when is it going to stop? When are you going to take seriously? Go and sin no more. Leave that way. Leave that style. Turn around. Walk in my light. Oh, man, he wants us to see that. The second thing, he invites us to live in grateful fear. That's the word. He invites us to live in grateful fear. You say, say what, Jeff? What are you talking about? I want to be very careful what I say next because I have friends who are Bible teachers that will teach that when you become a Christian, there is no place for fear anymore in your life as a Christian. And I know what they mean by that. There is no place for fear that's the opposite of faith. I know that. But there is one kind of fear that Jesus advocates in Luke 12, 5 and in other places, and that is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a completely different thing. It's a healthy thing. It means a deep respect and awe, not a carelessness or a cleverness with God, but someone who goes, you are absolutely great. There is no darkness in you like there is in me. You are, and the sense of healthy fear that keeps us from becoming cocky and careless. So some of you have seen Psalm 130, verse 3 and 4 before. Look at this. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? Who could take their hat off? But with you, there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are, what's the phrase, friends? Feared. Oh, my goodness. He says, because you forgave me, I am in awe of your greatness that you would do that. And it leads to this healthy fear. Some of you have seen Proverbs 3, 7, and 8 before. It tells us what happens when the healthy fear of the Lord is working in our lives. Do not be wise in your own eyes. That's the opposite of the fear of the Lord. But fear the Lord and shun evil. In other words, be done with it. Run from it. Separate from it. Break from it. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Does Jesus tell us to do this? Does God tell us to do this because he wants to take away our joy? He wants to increase it, but he wants it to be the wholesome kind. And that's why he says these things. And then look at Philippians 2. We learned this when we were going through Philippians. This helped us. Here's what Paul writes to believers. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation, not work for, continue to work out your salvation that God gave you by his grace with what, friends? Fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his what? Good purpose. He wants to help, but never get to the place where you start treating God like someone you can just like say, well, I'm going to do with your truth and do with your grace whatever I want. This week, when I was thinking about how to close this, I, 
I had this thought come to my mind, and sometimes when I have thoughts that go across the ticker of my mind, I have to first of all ask God, is that you, or is that just, you know, some bad food last night? But when that goes across my mind, the other thing I have to ask is, God, if this is you speaking to me, is this for me or for us? And what I sensed him wanting me to talk about right now is this idea of healthy fear. And he reminded me of the stanza in the song, Amazing Grace. Some of you know what I'm going to talk about. Do you remember this phrase? "'Twas grace that taught my heart to what? Fear. Was it truth that taught my heart to fear? Yeah. But that's not what he's emphasizing here. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. And then I love the next line because it corrects things. And grace, my fears relieved. In other words, there's wrong kind of fear that I need to have be relieved from. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. And when you and I walk in the light as he is in the light with reverence and awe and humility and not being wise in our own eyes, but having a heart to, to break with whatever he asks us to break from because we love him more than we love our sin. We love him more than we love ourselves. When we begin to walk like that, friends, you know what begins to shine through our eyelids and through our hearts and lives to other people? The light of the world begins to shine through us into the world. And so I have a closing question for you. Here it is. How do we learn from this encounter? Is his grace and truth leading me to walk in the light? Is his grace and truth leading me to walk in the light? Are we high grace, high truth? Are we understanding that he does not condemn us? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Somebody say amen. That is phenomenal. But you know what there is in Christ Jesus? Conviction. Conviction because he will cut like a sword into anything that's like cancer in our lives so that he can clean it out and fill it with his light so that now we can become different people. Does it mean we'll never stumble? No. Go and sin no more does not mean all that. But here's what it means. 1 John 1, 5 through 7. Guess who wrote this? Same guy that wrote the other stuff we've just been reading. This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you, God is light. And there is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we, have fellowship, if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light, as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What do you need to do in these closing moments? As Danielle plays, I want to remind you of one more passage of Scripture. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says, We do not have a high priest in Jesus who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every way has been tempted as we have been tempted, yet was without sin. Therefore, because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross as the perfect, sinless atonement for our sins, let us approach the throne of grace boldly, that we may find help in our time of need. So let's just take time to approach his throne and talk to the light of the world right now or listen to him. I urge you to bow your head and let him speak to you. And if you need to, tell him you're sorry. If you need to obey him in some way, I urge you to obey him, but listen to him.
This week I was praying about how we might, it might be helpful to you as we end this service. What's Jesus saying to you? Have you ever put your trust in him, the light of the world? Or are you still going to walk in darkness or go your own way? The Bible says that some re- one of the reasons people reject Jesus is because they love darkness more than light because their deeds are evil and they want to keep those going. Would you be willing to make a break? Would you be willing to turn from your sin and put your trust in Christ and his cleansing power for you? To be able to live in your life as the light of the world? Have you ever done that? Would you do that today? The Bible says that you can call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved for all eternity. And he can start something new in your life so you can go and sin no more. Maybe you've already taken that step in the past, but you've gotten careless lately. Or you've fallen back into a pattern that you've been excusing And he's saying, don't do that. Go and sin no more. I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. Respond to my grace and truth. Let it teach you how to fear me properly. Is there something you need to to make a break with today? Not put off. Whatever he's saying to you, I hope you will. I want to ask the prayer team to come down front, and I want you to stand down front visible where people will be able to see you after the service. And here's the thing, we say this every Sunday, if Jesus has been asking you to put your faith in him, we'll be glad to pray with you down front if you've already taken that step, but he's asking you to become a member of this church. Or he's just saying, I want you to pray with someone who has skin on. I want you to experience grace and truth from another person. Go and pray with them. And I pray that you can experience that. But now I'm going to stand and pray, and then we'll be dismissed on this Memorial Day weekend. Oh, Jesus, thank you for the way that you are full of grace and truth. Let us be a church that when people walk through these doors, they will not experience condemnation. But by your grace, they might experience conviction. I need that too. But show us how to keep learning how to teach both and hold them high so that people can encounter you and not us so much. You. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Again, I don't see anybody else up here to pray, but okay. All right, they'll be here, okay? God bless you.